during Advent uh, with the students over at the Oasis. And, and so I was um, just really brought back and, and convicted to, uh, to share that with you this morning. And, and we are going to go through two chapters, okay? But, but I promise you, you didn't need to pack a lunch. It's okay. Um, we'll be good. But I, I do want to give you a disclaimer, okay? A couple of them. One, I talk fast, okay? And so especially when I get excited. And I get really excited about God's Word, and I get really excited about the book of Ruth. But I have several reminders up here for me to slow down. And there's even a dear brother that has a hand signal that's going to go, if I get too fast. All right, so um, we're going to try to work against that. The book of Ruth is a historical narrative, and as far as author, there really isn't a common consensus on who wrote the book of Ruth. And in regards to today, there's also not a real common consensus on when it was written. There's a school of thought that it is pre-exilic, so, so prior to the Babylonian captivity. But there's also a school of thought that it's post-exilic, so after the Israelites returned from captivity. And personally, I'm more in the pre-exilic camp, and, and more specifically during the time of, of Solomon's reign. And that's why I believe that the book was written. Now, now, what I just mentioned is in reference to when it was written, but, but not when the events that are narrated in the book actually took place. And, and for that, we just see in the first verse, chapter 1, it says this. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. This small book of inspired God-breathed scripture is, is one building block, one, one chain, and one segment of, of redemptive history where we see God's purposes unfold as he looks forward to the redemption of his people. It's a story of tragedy. It's a story of utter heartache, right? As, as we just saw. Just despair, right? And we can all relate to that in various ways. It's a story of selfless devotion. But it's a love story between a sovereign God and his children. And we'll see that through the pages of this book. Those whom he has called according to his purpose. And there's so many themes that run through the pages of these scriptures and the scripture. And, and even we see numerous links to other parts of redemptive history, particularly to the lives of the patriarchs. So here's the second disclaimer. In the time that we're allotted, we're not going to be able to unpack every theme or every profound truth that's here in the pages of the book of Ruth, particularly in the first two chapters. So, so I encourage you to go back, study it, because it's so beautiful. But we're going to do our best to... to to, to hit as much as we can. Uh, the covenantal language and themes throughout the book are beautiful. And we'll tap into those some, but, but not as near as deep as they warrant. But one thing that's boldly evident throughout the book of Ruth is God's providence. And as you read through this book, God's providence and, and the, the, the reality of God's providence just jumps off the page. I love how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He goes, It is one of those biblical narratives which, when put under the microscope, shows us, as it were, in miniature, but in detail, how perfect the sovereign providential purposes of our God really are. We know that our finite brains cannot come close to even trying to fully comprehend the providence of God, right? And Scripture tells us His ways are, are so much higher than what? 
than our ways, right? But being fallen humans, there is so much of God that we, that's still veiled to us. But my hope for us this morning is that, that we examine just a few aspects, if you will, of God's providence. And some of you will be proud. They all start with the letter P. I didn't even have to work that hard to get it. God gave it to me. And uh, I told Mark I was going to reference him and Shane. Mark, Shane, I don't think you're going to need an encyclopedia for anything, any, any words I use. So, a little inside joke there. Right. But, but seriously, I, I pray this morning that we'll grapple, study, reflect on the pain of God's providence, the purpose of God's providence, and the provision of God's providence. The first point, the, the pain of God's providence, it's one that, that doesn't sit well when we immediately hear it, right? And we see and we look in these first few verses of the book of Ruth that Naomi is dealt unbearable pain. She loses her husband. She loses her sons. And we don't know the exact span, but but in this time period, and it hurts, right? But here's what's beautiful, and this is evidence throughout Scripture. It's evidence throughout church history. And it's evidence throughout our lives. It's that God works the pain for our good in a way that only he can. Amen? And is it still painful? Certainly. Pain hurts. My dear, precious daughter, Ellison, who is going to get so upset that I'm mentioning her right now, has a pain tolerance of like negative 10. Okay? (laughs) And I'll have to explain to her what that means, and she'll probably be upset. Pain hurts. It's hard, right? But can the pain be used by God to further his purposes in our lives? Most certainly. So we see in the, the events of the book of Ruth, they took place during the time in Israel's history where the judges ruled, so probably around... 1350-ish B.C. to about 1014 B.C. And one doesn't have to read far into the book of Judges to see that it was really a dark time for God's people, right? Particularly in the area where much of the book focuses. And if we flip back one page in scriptures to the last verse of the book of Judges, we get a glimpse as to why a bulk of this time period was such a shipwreck for God's people. And so the book of Judges... um, Chapter 21, verse 25 says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's a callback, really, to to Judges 17.6, which is right on the cusp of perhaps one of Israel's greatest apostasies, one of Israel's darkest moments in their history. And you can read throughout Judges 17 through 20, it's a story that I'm certain you're familiar with, but again, just gives further context as to, to what was going on during the time of the events that we'll see in the book of Ruth take place. And essentially, in my view, giving the events of Ruth, particularly chapters 2 through 4, more gravitas. And so the second half of verse 1 into verse 2, And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. And we see throughout the Old Testament 
that famines, although tragic, are often used by God to move forward his plans for his people. And many times throughout the Old Testament, a famine is a result of God's people not living in the way in which he called them to live. So we see in Bethlehem, which means what? House of bread, right? There was no bread. There was a famine in the land. So this man, by the name of Elimelech, which is important to note, in Hebrew means my God is king, takes his family, his wife Naomi and their two sons, and leaves the land that was promised to them and is going into what is perhaps the most pagan land in the area, the country of Moab, land of Moab. The Moabites were very much a godless culture. And y'all remember where, where the, the Moabites came from, right? Go back to Genesis 19, and it's a story of incest with Lot and his daughters. And, that, and we see that's where the people of Moab come from. By and large, they were a wicked people. And Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, part of God's chosen people, the Israelites, leave Bethlehem, the promised land, to seek a better life among the Moabites. And we are right to look at this move, this escape, as a movement of spiritual decline. And they settled, we see, and remained there. In verse 3, we see that Elimelech dies. And let's be honest, Elimelech's death raises some very honest questions, right? Why did he die? Is this judgment because of the sin he committed in, in, in taking his family from the promised land to Moab? Is this judgment for taking his family away to a land of polytheism and idolatry? In verses 4 and 5, we see that Naomi's two sons take Moabite wives. And this was, of course, frowned upon in Israelite culture, right? Naomi and her two sons and their two wives, they lived there for 10 years. And and I believe this gives further indication that they had no intention of going back to Bethlehem. We see that they remained, they settled there. In some sense, this was their new home. One thing it's important to note here is that, that from what we can see in the, in the text, in those 10 years, no children were born. So typically in a Near Eastern family, because having heirs, especially for Israelites, was such a big deal, children came quickly after marriage, right? So this wasn't the case for either of Naomi's two sons and their wives, and we're not told why. But more heartache continues for Naomi and her family, right? And she loses her two sons. But here's where I do think we need to be careful. It's certainly easy for us to claim correlation is causation here on a micro scale. That, that Naomi lost her husband and her sons because of their decision to leave Bethlehem, move to Moab, and immerse in the culture there. But, but the text doesn't specifically tell us that. The text tells us that this family left Bethlehem, the land of promise, and went to Moab. Right? And this is super important as we work through this idea of the pain of God's providence. God's sovereignty can never be reduced to a simple formula as he brings his children into and through periods of suffering and pain. 
But God's judgment on sin is reliable. For his word is faithful, but even more consistent. God's desire to restore wandering sinners to himself. Grace is always God's last word. But let's reflect on this. One of the beautiful things about God's grace, about the mystery of his sovereignty and his providence, is that in the midst of pain, God is working it for the good of those he has called according to his purposes. And to quote Shane, that's hallelujah ground, right? And we see this play out in Naomi's life as the book progresses. But let's not kid ourselves. Naomi seems to be in a helpless and hopeless situation with no seed to carry on the family line. Elimelech's family is on the brink of extinction. And in Israel, for an Israelite family, there is no greater tragedy than for a family name to cease to exist. Church, we need not fall into the school of thought that although we may fall under the providence of God, life is always smooth sailing, free of tragedy, heartache, loss. And in most cases, through through earthly lenses, the pain doesn't make sense. But as we'll see in the life of Naomi, in the life of Ruth, we also see this in the life of Abraham, we see this in the life of Joseph, we, all throughout the pages of Scripture, God works the pain for the good of his children. Isn't that sweet? That's so sweet. In verses 6 through 18, we'll see some purpose of God's providence. And in verse 6, we see that Naomi gets word that Yahweh has graciously provided for his people in Bethlehem. The famine's gone. And that was God's doing. So Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth start on the journey to Bethlehem. I don't believe Naomi chooses to head back to Bethlehem just because the famine was gone. Her situation is going to be bleak wherever she was. She lost her sons. She lost her husband. She's a widow. Probably past the age where she could provide for herself. So they start and they head back. But somewhere along the way, Naomi turns to Orpah and Ruth and essentially begs them to go back to Moab, to go back to their families. Naomi wanted to go back to Bethlehem alone. She's essentially saying, goodbye, God bless you, thank you, but I'm leaving and you're staying. She formally freed Orpah and Ruth of any further responsibility toward her We see this in verses 8 and 9, and this is interesting. Although Naomi is still in a place of pain, bitterness, even as we've seen later in chapter 1, she calls upon Yahweh to bless and care for her daughter-in-laws. So she obviously still believes in the power of Yahweh, right? Even in the midst of the pain that she's walked through. And she specifically asks Yahweh to extend kindness to them. The Hebrew word that is translated kindness here is much more robust than the the English translation gives us. And it's a word, a Hebrew word you're probably familiar with. That's the word hesed. It's a loving kindness, an unfailing kind of love. 
a covenantal type of love, often used to describe God's faithfulness to his covenant people. Naomi was requesting, catch this, Naomi was requesting that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, would show covenant loyalty and love to these two Moabites. But he was asking, she was asking Yahweh to do this in the land of Moab. She knew that she wasn't in a position to show this to them, so she's asking God to do it for her. Again, we'll see that there is some obvious bitterness towards God that Naomi still has in her heart, but she's still calling upon him to care for these two women who are very near and dear to her. She still recognizes Yahweh as the giver in spite of the pain that she had walked through. I want to repeat that. Naomi still recognizes Yahweh as the giver in spite of the pain that she had walked through in spite of the pain that she had providentially walked through. Over the next few verses, we see Naomi gives all sorts of reasons why Orpah and Ruth should stay in Moab. She's telling them that there's no good reason for them to go with her. And in verse 13, we really get a picture of the helpless and what appears to be hopeless state of Naomi, at least from her perspective. And this is interesting. In the Old Testament, the phrase hand of Yahweh referred to the almighty, irresistible power of God that only he could produce. So to express opposition, the common expression was the hand of Yahweh was against whoever the enemy was. And and what does Naomi say right here? The hand of Yahweh was what? Against, has been against me. What Naomi is essentially saying here is that from her perspective, Yahweh has attacked her as his enemy. So there's still some working through this pain that Naomi has to do, right? Orpah takes her up on it. She's heartbroken over it, of course. And we see a tearful moment, and Orpah kisses Naomi, but then she returns to Moab. But in verse 14, what was Ruth's reaction? It says Ruth what? Clung to her. A complete 180 from what Orpah did, right? But what Orpah did made sense. It was sensible. From earthly standards, what Ruth was doing did not make sense. In verse 15, Naomi tries again to get Ruth to leave her, and we almost get the picture that Ruth has to almost interrupt her mother-in-law, something I would never do, by the way. (laughs) Don't ask her. And what follows is, to me, some of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. I want to read those again. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's almost like she's saying, mother-in-law, stop. I don't want to go back. Moab is not my home anymore. 
I'm not a child of Moab. I'm a child of Yahweh. Because I don't want to go back to that land. Yahweh has called me into himself. And we see some evidence in the Hebrew language used in a few places throughout the chapter, really over 11 times, that this Hebrew word for return or turn back speaks often of when there's a Gentile conversion in the Old Testament. And something else I want us to look at, when, in verse 15, 16 where it says, your God, my God, that's a nonverbal statement. And I don't mean that in the sense that she did not use words to declare this. I mean that in the sense that there's no verb here. And, and compare that to the other statement. She goes, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. But this one's different, isn't it? She says what? Your God, my God. Ruth was renouncing, turning away from the polytheism of the Moabites and embracing Yahweh. Amen. And we see here providentially that God purposefully called Ruth unto himself. Ruth, who was once far off, was brought near. And we see Ephesians 2.13, right? We see that, that same language echoing there. One commentator I read said this. Here, Ruth models an adventurous faith, one willing to abandon the, the apparently sensible and venture into unknown territory. We see God has drawn Ruth through the tragedy and the pain in order to bring about his gracious purpose to pass. And we'll continue to talk through that next week. But isn't that the way of the Christ follower? We follow not by faith, or not by sight, but by what? Faith, right? And Ruth's actions here also foreshadow some of Jesus' teaching, right? And he says, you're called to abandon your father and your mother Leave behind. You don't have time to bury your dead. Follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Verses 19 through 22, quickly, we see here just further evidence of Naomi's state. We see as she returns to Bethlehem, and people start to realize that it's her. She tells them not to call her Naomi, which meant pleasant, but to call her Mara, which means bitter. And this is a name with a history, right? Mara? A history of God's people rebelling at the perceived lack of provision for their needs. The name rings a bell, right? It was at Mara in the wilderness on the way out of Egypt that the children of Israel grumbled against the Lord because they couldn't drink the water. You remember that? And that, that place was named Mara because it was bitter. But had Naomi really returned empty? Did she really come back empty-handed to Bethlehem? She had Ruth. But Naomi had no clue how so not empty she really was. And we'll see that as the pages progress in Scripture. And the third point, we're going to see the provision 
of God's providence. I know that sounds strange. And this is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. So, so let me read this as we venture into Naomi, or excuse me, Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And that's a theme we'll see also pop up in chapter 3 next week. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And this is great, church. Listen to this. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until that evening and she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an apha of barley. And that's where we'll stop right now. In verse 1, the narrator clues the reader into something, that there's a relative by the name of Boaz that owns a lot of land in the area. As we move through chapter 2, and and this is mind-blowing stuff here, we see the provision of God's providence, or we can take it a step further and say the plentiful provision of God's providence. In verse 1, again, like I said, the narrator clues us into something. In verse 2, notice how the narrator reminds us of where Ruth was from. 
brings up again Ruth the, the, the Moabitess. We're reminded that she was a foreigner, okay? That's something important to keep in mind as we go through chapter 2. And gleaning was hard work, but Ruth is showing some initiative. She's saying, hey, let me go to the field for glean. Someone had to provide, right? They didn't have a man to care for them. Because of how property was laid out then, and, and there wasn't really fences to mark boundary lines, it was essentially left up to chance, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, in whose field Ruth would end up gleaning in. In verse 3, we see that she happened to wind up gleaning in the field belonging to Boaz. But she doesn't know who Boaz is. We do, right? We're, we're clued into that. But Ruth doesn't know. If you're like me, there are several happen-tos in your life that scream of the providence of God. Many of you know my story, but in 2017, after serving nine years at the church, we stepped away on very good terms and moved to Dallas because that's what all cool young families did, was move to Dallas, right? So we did that. And I didn't know what I was going to do for work, but I didn't think I was ever going to step back into vocational ministry. Becky got a job, and I got a job, and and then I was presented with an opportunity to go into damage, water, fire, restoration, mitigation, which I knew nothing about. But there was someone that was starting a franchise there whose mom I worked with at the church in Louisiana. And he just wanted someone he could trust, so I jumped on board. And I learned this trade. Fast forward to 2019, and we are getting ready to... We just. Life in Dallas, it was fine, but we just did not feel home there. So we, go, we were back in Louisiana just visiting and seeing a former youth get baptized. And her dad says, hey, there's a job in Tyler you may be interested in. But we need someone with water, fire damage, mitigation experience. That's in Tyler. Would you be interested? I said, sure. So I applied, and I show up, and... He's the one that's interviewing me, one of my former youth's parents. And so we moved to Tyler. Didn't have any recent connections to anyone in Tyler. I was Facebook friends with a lady named Amy Waters, who I worked with at Pine Cove back in 2007. And we're looking for a church, and Amy invites us to Sylvania. So we started attending Sylvania being good church members. And then our former youth and worship pastor leaves, and the elders know that, hey, Jaron used to be a youth pastor. Do you want to fill in for a little bit, Jaron? And through God's providence, God opened the door for me to jump on staff here. There's a lot of happen-tos, but every one of those just screamed the providence of God. And I think if we all examine our life, we'll see those same happen-tos are really the providence of God in our lives. Something else to keep in mind is we're, we're close to closing, I promise. Most reapers, not gleaners, were very good at their jobs, so they would get paid on the amount of grain that they would reap. So typically, they were careful not to leave a whole lot. So gleaning fallen grain was a very substance living 
We may compare it to maybe picking up cans on the side of the road or, or uh, scrap in order to buy food. Landowners were, were commanded by God, and we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 24, to leave the edges of their fields as well as solitary stalks at the edges so that foreigners, the fatherless, the widows, could glean some of the harvest for themselves. In verses 4 through 7, we get to know Boaz a little better. He shows up to his workers' employees and greets them with a blessing of God's presence, right? And note how his workers respond. The Lord bless you. Remember, this is tough work, and even for the paid reapers, harvesters, in a simple, undramatic way, it affirmed the presence of Yahweh in this scene. We see that Boaz notices Ruth, which is interesting that a man of his stature would notice a gleaner. In verse 8, Boaz says, pay attention to what I'm saying, Ruth. He wanted Ruth to pay very careful attention to what he was about to say. And note he speaks directly to the widowed Moabite, which this was absolutely against cultural expectation at the time, right? She was a foreign widow. And he does so with gentleness and compassion. He speaks to her. Look at verse 9. This is crazy. Verse 9, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Boaz's instruction to go to the vessels and drink had inestimable value. Access to drink would greatly benefit Ruth's productivity. She would keep gleaning at top efficiency without losing valuable time drawing her own water. What an interesting touch. A foreign woman who would customarily would draw water for Israelites was welcome to drink water drawn by Israelites. Notice the abundance. Far more than Ruth asked for or expected. And we should note that the edges of the fields could be a very dangerous place for a young lady. Boaz truly cared about Ruth's protection. In verse 10, she asked Boaz, Why have I found favor in your sight, me, a poor foreigner? And this is a direct response to verse 2 when she says, I'm going to find who in whose eyes I have found favor. Now we have to be careful here not to think that, that Ruth has earned God's grace but he's providentially given it to her. In verses 14 through 17, my mind really starts to get blown. We see that Boaz invites Ruth to the table. This invitation clearly went beyond the generous privileges already granted to her. He had already done a lot to her and given her a lot of opportunity to glean and glean extra. But then he says, hey, Come to my table. Come eat. Ruth's status has been elevated, not by her own doing, but by the grace and kindness of Boaz, above that of honored gleaner. A gleaner and the foreign one was now welcome among the reapers. And look at this. We see here that she ate until she was satisfied. And who knows the last time that she had been able to eat like that until she was satisfied. 
she even got leftovers. Growing up, and my mom's here, and so she'll chuckle at this. Growing up, especially on Sunday evenings, we'd say, Mom, what's for dinner? Because all of our friends were going to eat at the local Pizza Inn or some other restaurant, the best that Paris had to offer, Paris, Texas, not France. And so we'd say, where are we going to eat? And, or what are we going to eat? And the most, one of the most famous lines of my childhood, my mom would say, this, that, and the other, which meant leftovers. <laughs> and to a, a teenage boy who wanted to go socialize with his friends, that was not appealing. But to a foreigner, a widow, who had not had much for probably no telling how many years, leftovers were a welcome sight. <laughs> Boaz instructs his men to do three things. He orders them to allow Ruth to gather from the prime spot in his field. He warns against anyone mistreating her. And he tells his men to set aside some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her. So he's essentially instructing his men to drop their harvest on the ground so she could pick it up. And the blessings still aren't done. We see that Ruth ends up with an ephah of barley, which was about 22 liters. In our mind, we probably better understand it as about six gallons of barley. That's as much as a hired worker would typically earn for two weeks. She got it in a day. Ruth was providentially provided for in abundance. Can I say that again? Ruth was providentially provided for in abundance. As a foreigner, as one who was once far off. Grace upon grace. Friends, if we are in Christ, if he has called us and chosen us according to his purposes for his good pleasure, we are welcomed to his table, not by our own merit whatsoever, but by his grace. Purely by grace through faith. And we are given more than we could ever comprehend. Christ came to give life so that we may have it to the full. In verses 18 to 23, as we close, look at Naomi's reaction. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, This man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, I wish I could see the reaction on Naomi's face. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours one of our redeemers. And we'll talk more about that next week. Look at Naomi's reaction. 
Through the pain of God's providence, Naomi was emptied, which made way for her to be filled with his provision for her and her family. And there's so much more to come as we progress through this book. So friends, we have to be careful. Here's my challenge to us this morning. We have to be careful not to allow the pain that we experience to draw our attention away from how God blesses us even in midst and seasons of pain. Friends, we have to be careful not to allow the pain and difficulties that we experience to draw our attention away from the plentiful provision that God grants for us on a daily basis. Not just for our life here, but more importantly, in eternity. Spurgeon said this, We are too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in sand. There's a 17th century Puritan Presbyterian minister, John Flevel, said this, Some providences, like Hebrew letters, must be read backwards. Friends, family, we don't often don't understand the trials and difficulties and pain as we're walking through them. And many times the pain and the trials and the difficulty draws us, brings us to our knees. But as people of God, we have something we can rest on, and that is God's providence, His vision because of His providence. So my challenge to us today, as we continue to walk through life, and tragedy and difficulty and pain continues to come our way as it will, may we continue to rest on the purpose and the provision of God's providence. Amen? Church, I love you. I really do. Let's pray. Father, you are so, so good. We are broken, fallen humanity, but you have chosen to bring us to your table, to bless us bountifully. And it's so easy for us as we walk through the circumstances and the difficulties and the trials of life to be distracted from that pain because it hurts. But Father, as your people, as the people of God, I pray that we rest in your purpose and provision of your providence. And as we do that, we proclaim you so that the world may see, in spite of pain and difficulty, we still praise you for who you are. Father, we love you. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.